So uh, Kat and I are going to talk about to infinity and beyond. Nothing like a little drug math to round out the day, don't you think, now that we're all brain dead? Uh, so we have still nothing to disclose. We don't even own stock in this movie, do we, or Disney, or Pixar, whoever it was. No, but we're flying high. We are flying high, yes. But no drugs. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about how to convert from a complex opioid regimen to a different regimen and talk about even picking drugs based on patient and agent-related variables. Talk about opioid dosing strategies for escalation and tapering according to various different routes, and then given an actual simulated patient, recommend a strategy to switch between oral and parenteral, including PCA. So I'd like to start with this case. I, I wrote this case for the Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care meeting, and we spent an hour and a half beating to death this case. We had such a lot of fun, but we won't be here an hour and a half, I promise you. So here we have a 54-year-old woman with stage 4 breast cancer, METS to the mediastinum, right axillary node, and the bone, specifically her rib. Uh, esophageal strictures from tumor in the mediastinum, status post chemo times three radiation, status post several esophageal dilations. She complains of moderately severe pest in her chest and her right arm. She has a son in the military who's gone a lot traveling and a sister who is a nurse, but she lives two hours away. And the patient has many concerns. She's very upset. She's concerned about her ability to cope with the disease as it progresses. She doesn't want to be a burden on her family, and she's worried about the financial implications of her disease, particularly uh, it's expensive to buy nutritional supplements like Ensure, for example. So what additional information would you like to know to evaluate her pain? You're all experts. You've been here all week. What do you want to know? What meds is she taking? Okay, what else? All will be revealed on the next slide. <laughs> okay, we're all tired, so we'll just go to the next slide. So, she really has pain in three different spots, and this is an important point. Often I'll ask a hospice nurse, so where's the patient's pain? And the nurse will say, oh, the patient says it hurts everywhere. I said, that's not enough. You have to have them point to all the places that it hurts. So this patient says her anterior chest hurts, her right rib area hurts, and her arm hurts. So specifically, the anterior chest pain, um, she says it's pressure-like, and eating makes it worse. Nothing really helps it except for not eating. For her whole pain situation, she's just taking acetaminophen four grams a day. This pain is in the center of her chest, starts in her throat, and goes straight down. Uh, she says, in general, the pain's a seven. It's never better than a six. It's constant. And then for the right rib pain, she says it's a dull ache. And what makes it worse is rolling on those, those right side ribs. And coughing makes it worse. Lying perfectly still helps a little bit. Uh, she points directly to the area. She says the pain's a seven, never better than a six, but it can hit a ten when she rolls over. And the pain's always there. The pain in her arm, she says, is a constant painful numbness and tingling, but then she has frequent episodes of shooting pain down her arm and electrical shocks. It's her whole right arm. She said moving her fingers sometimes makes it worse. Nothing really makes it better. It's between a 7 and 8 and a 10. Um, and then she says she's not eating well for fear of exacerbating the pain. She's losing weight, so she's very worried she'll be too weak to stay at home alone. She can't walk her dog, which she really enjoys doing. She's worried about who will take care of Rover if she gets sicker or should die. People worry about that more than themselves. And if you have ever worked hospice, you know that hospice people are in very much danger of adopting 412 cats and dogs because we feel sorry for the patient and we're all pillow fluffers for a living, so we all want to take animals home with us. My husband will kill me if I bring home one more dog. Um, so that means cats. He, well, we don't even talk about cats. That's not even on the table. Um, my dog would eat them, for one thing. Um, she's not sleeping well. She's afraid to change positions. So she's exhausted constantly and has a very hard time with personal care. The shooting pain down her arm leaves her in tears, and she's always dreading the shooting pain coming on. She's always afraid of the other shoe uh, dropping. So what do you think is the pathogenesis of her three pain situation? So we've got nociceptive and neuropathic, nociceptive and somatic and visceral, and neuropathic can be central or peripheral. So what's this central pain right here? Yeah, so but what is it? Somatic or neuropathic? And then if it's somatic, I mean, is it somatic or visceral or neuropathic? I think it's kind of more of a visceral pain, don't you? It's kind of deep inside, probably related to her esophageal process. How about this pain over here in her ribs? What kind of pain is that? Somatic. Somatic is skin, bone, joint, and soft tissue. It's metastatic bone pain. How about the pain down her arm? 
That's definitely neuropathic, right? So this is not uncommon with an advanced illness to see this mixed pain pathology. So she tells you acetaminophen four grams a day is just not making a difference. She's afraid to try something stronger. She fears getting hooked. The oncologist says chemo, radiation, not an option. Her labs are okay. Her creatinine's 0.8. She's five foot three, weighs 101 pounds. Past medical history is seasonal allergies and mild hypertension. Her blood pressure is less than 120 over 80, and she's not taking any drugs. So what are we going to do now? I get, this one says methadone. She's been hanging around me too much. Okay. <laughs> okay, what do you want to say? So what are you going to say about that? So how would you have that conversation? I'll be the patient. Oh, dude, I don't want to take an opiate. I make it hooked. Methadone? Are you crazy? Non-steroidals? Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. I don't want to take a non-steroidal. I don't know. I watch the TV show Cops, and it looks like those drugs get a hold of you, and you just don't have any way out. Anybody else? Next. Well, you know, I do hear this a lot in my clinic. Um, so I, what I generally say is, well, you know, that's a valid concern. We do have a tremendous problem in this country with, you know, opioid misuse and abuse and so forth. So tell me, have you ever had like a dental procedure or in-out surgery where you just had a few Percocet or Vicodin or anything? And most people will say yes. And then I'll say, well, did you go like crazy and sell them on the street or, you know, break into the doctor's office to get more? Of course not. Well, then I'm not worried about you. You, you don't seem like you've got that kind of personality. I'm not worried about you. But we will take it slow and we will make joint decisions all along the way. So I agree with Scott. Talking to the patient is the first step and, you know, have to validate their fears. I mean, it is a real fear, of course. But we've done... Go Although I was going to say one important thing when you're teaching other people to manage pain is we did a project with our residents when they did a standardized patient going in and assessing them and the patient brought up a fear of opioid and probably 90% of the medical residents reassured them immediately that their risk is low and they, that they don't have to worry about opioids, they should take it for their pain. And the, the standardized patient was a pancreatic cancer patient. And I said, well, that's fine um, to reassure them, but you have to assess them for risk first before you reassure them. Because that patient, you are just assured that that's not a problem, might be an active user <laughs> and actually have very high risk profile. I was like, you don't know, you didn't ask them. So you have to, you know, like Dr. Mitchell said, do a risk assessment first before you reassure them that it's not going to be a problem. And I've heard some crazy explanations. Some of my hospice nurses, I love them. They, they make the most creative explanations. Like I heard one nurse say, you don't have to worry about that because the pain, the pain sucks up the opioid. So there's none left over. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I went to pharmacy school a long time and I, I, I don't think I heard that one. I've never heard the methadone of sucking. Suck, sucking Me it up. Mechanism. Well, I don't know. Maybe that comes from suck it up when sucky. I don't know. Anyway, the patient reluctantly agrees to begin morphine 5Q4 around the clock scheduled with 2.5Q2 PRN for moderate pain or 5 milligrams Q2 PRN severe pain. Within a week, she's using the morphine 5Q4 around the clock and she's taking 10 milligrams at bedtime and one to two doses a day of the breakthrough. So her total delay dose is 35 on average. How will you monitor her response to therapy? I know this seems like a pedantic exercise, but I do this with my students, and, and Dr. Walker and I did an exercise with hospital and hospice nurses, and we had a, a much simpler case of somebody getting a long-acting morphine and a short-acting morphine and said, what would you monitor? And it was really scary, because when we, we looked at toxicity, the highest rated one was constipation. What percentage of the nurses do you think listed constipation as something to monitor? It wasn't zero. How, what percentage of the nurses do you think said we should look at constipation? 40%. I was shocked. I was shocked. 40%. So what do you think? What do you want to monitor? But they were all monitoring for what some of these people say. What? Respiratory. Oh, the respiratory. Yeah. That was hot. That was are they more likely to get respiratory depression from MS Cotton 15Q12 or are they more likely to get constipated? <laughs> of course. Of course. So what are you going to monitor for this lady? How are you going to see if she's achieving her therapeutic goal? Is she walking her over? Of course, that's her goal, isn't it? You, but I think the most important question to ask is, what would you like to be able to do that you can't do now because of the pain? That's your goal. And then we also talk about the pain rating, but the pain rating really is a surrogate for their functional level, isn't it? So we, we talk about the SIT, the self-identified threshold. So if I, I teach it like this. I break it into a big box for my students, subjective and objective, for therapeutic effectiveness and for potential toxicity. So we're going to ask her about her pain rating, which is subjective, her best, 0 to 10, or worst, or average, and all three separately, the chest, the, the ribs, and the arm. Her ability to eat, 
um, move, easily move around, less weakness, repositioning in bed, able to move her fingers, walking rover should be on the list, less cheerful and in a better mood. Objective, I can look at her weight because if this pain eases, maybe she'll start eating more. I like to look at the PRN use of the breakthrough analgesics because hopefully it's a low number. Do I observe any grimacing or guarding number of hours of sleep and any subjective assessment about her mood? How about the toxicity? Subjective is all complaint of all the things we look for. And then generally we can take a subjective complaint of toxicity and often we can make it objective as well, such as the bowel movement frequency, my all-time fave, the Bristol stool chart, vomiting, ex observed excoriation if she's scratching like a big old dog. The, one week later, she tells you the morphine is help, but the every four-hour dosing is a giant pain in the neck, and she only remembers to take it because the pain reminds her. The morphine 10 at bedtime, which is totally against what we told her to do, still does not give her pain relief in the morning. The anterior chest pain is reduced to an average of three out of five, which is okay, but still not a goal. The eating's a little better, mostly drinking Ensure, but no solid food. She rates the right lateral chest pain as a five to six, but it still shoots up to a nine when she rolls over, and she still can't get comfortable at night or sleep. She's still only sleeping three to five hours a night. It's very interrupted. And the arm pain is unchanged. It's still shooting, and she's still very upset about it. She's constipated, and she says it's a one or a two on the Bristol chart. And she has nausea and vomiting and abdominal fullness and very consistent. So what are we going to do now? So over here to my friend. What did you say we should do? Yeah. Okay. Well, Ms. Cunt does, come, does not come 20. It comes 15. You want to do 15 twice a day? So you could do, that's, you're right, you could do MS Cotton 15 twice a day. What else would you entertain? Okay, the breakthrough. Anybody else? Any other regimens? Yeah. Bowel regimen, what do you want to give her? Should we give her naloxagol or methanaltrexone? What do you say? OTC. OTC. Senna, for example, polyethylene glycol, any of those. Any other long-acting opioids you would consider? Who, or who said a methanone? <laughs> Who said that? Who's my bestie? How much would you give her? Um, 2.5 points a day. Yeah, she's getting 35 milligrams. She's under 65 years old. So that would be perfect. Um, so we start her on a long-acting, short-acting. And nobody mentioned treating the bone pain. So, of course, we're going to think about a non-steroidal or a steroid. So when I make that, those distinctions, first I, I look about do they have a strong GI history, which could, you know, sink my battleship on both fronts. And then I see do they have diabetes or glucose intolerance or history of steroid-induced psychoses. If that's not the case, I would add DEX, which would help quite a bit. Um, she's still using 20 milligrams of oral morphine for breakthrough. The arm pain's a little better, but still complaining of shooting. What could you do for that? She tries the oral morphine. It's, it's so slow, and it really doesn't help a whole lot. Well, obviously, what else should we add to the regimen? A co-analgesic, but I think, personally, I would go with the methadone because sometimes the methadone will have a nice effect on the neuropathic pain, and then you can still add a co-analgesic like pregabalin or a tricyclic or whatever. So I think, you know, what's the dealio? I think the important thing is if a patient says, oh, my gosh, it hurts all over, the first question I ask when I'm trying to get to where the pain is, I say, oh, my gosh, can you show me where the pain is? And I watch how they use their hands. If they can take a finger and point right to it, automatically I'm sifting through this information. I'm thinking, watch, she's pointing right at it. I wonder, that sounds like somatic pain. And then you hear the description. It's dull. It's achy. It's sharp. That sounds like somatic pain. If they use a whole hand, like, oh, my God, deep inside here, deep inside my guts, that sounds like visceral pain. And nerve pain, oh, my gosh, all bets are off. Well, it kind of starts here and then, like, shoots down my arm. Well, that's pretty classic. Uh, so assess each one separately. And I, there are many models, but I like the PQRSTU model, precipitating, palliating, previous treatment quality, region radiation, so forth, and set the goal. We already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Try to determine the pathogenesis of each pain because that helps you pick the best drug and non-drug therapy and monitor response to therapy. Uh, I do like rational polypharmacy. Most patients are going to require more than one drug. Uh, why would we combine them to get a better, smoother effect to enhance the overall effectiveness, the diminished side effects, and certainly the co-analgesics co have an opioid sparing effect, which is very beneficial to reduce opioid-induced tolerance and hyperalgesia, and certainly to try and prevent dependency, addiction, or cravings. So I think you've seen this slide in other presentations, but, you know, adjuvants start from the multi-purpose, which are, you know, you can get a twofer or a threefer or a fourfer. If you look at mirtazapine, you can get four things for the price of one drug, which is pretty darn cool. And then it gets more and more specific as things go on. So picking the best adjuvant. And this is just another slide that I'm crazy popular uh, with me. 
because it just breaks down the drugs by their mechanism of action. So you cannot look deeply into somebody's eyes and say, oh my God, your sodium channels have run amok. But what you can do is say, I'm going to pick one drug that's going to hit the sodium channels, which is going to be the, the carbamazepine, the oxcarbazepine, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to pick one drug that hits central sensitization, which is the calcium voltage-gated channels or the NMD receptor antagonist. And then I'm going to complement with one drug that augments the descending inhibitory pathway, which could be tramadol, tapentadol, one, the SNRIs, or an opioid, of course. So that would be a rational polypharmacy regimen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. There we go. Okay. And I think it's a good tip, too, when you ask patients about their multiple pains and thinking about putting multiple drugs together. You know, a good line that I like to use is when they show you your pain, then say, if I were to take that pain completely away, what other place, where else would be uncomfortable? And then they tell me that if we were to take both of those away, what else would be uncomfortable? What else would bother you is usually what I tend to use instead of referring to it sometimes as pain because people sometimes say, well, it wouldn't bother me, but like it's, it, there's itching and like it's nerve pain that they're referring to, but they ref like post-hepatic neuralgia sometimes can be very itchy and it's like a nerve pain even though um, they don't refer to it as pain. Um, so when we think about opioid initiation dosing, um, this is not for necessarily an acute situation, but this is how most people kind of start their journey with opioids, is they go on a short-acting, morphine, hydromorphone, or oxycodone, you give it PRN, um, and see how they do, how much, how much they use it throughout the day. Now, if that patient is, you know, if, no, if they're not on an opioid and they're in acute pain crisis, so this is like, um, you know, when the road gets rocky and they're at home and you have a cancer patient, all of a sudden they have this new onset pain crisis going from zero to 110, they land themselves in the ED. Um, this is an approach from Cleveland Clinic, where in a supervised inpatient setting, um, this is, I'll note, it's a licensed independent practitioner. So this is not sitting by the bedside, not writing the orders for this to be done and like keep me posted. Um, and you're giving, you're kind of using dose stacking purposefully to get this patient under control quickly. So you're giving morphine one milligram IV, um, for 10, every 10 minutes. No, every minute for 10 Every minutes. minute for 10 minutes, followed by a five minute break. And you're dose stacking that medication to try to titrate them to comfort. Now what you wanna do is go up to 30 milligrams total and then evaluate. Um, you can do it also with fentanyl or hydromorphone. Um, so you can do it with subcutaneous or oral too, and I think this is important because um, there is you know, some thinking that if you keep in mind that it's every 30 minutes for oral, um, then you can dose stack oral similarly. Um, but the challenge with this, and you can see the doses here are pretty starting doses, they're pretty low doses, but here's the big important part, is the endpoint is not pain relief. So you're looking for that pain to come down two to four points on a pain rating scale, not for complete dose pain relief, because if, you've getting, if you get complete pain relief, then when all of those doses kick in, you've overshot, and that patient will have a lot of side effects and may not look good dead. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't want to do that. You just want to go two to four points down and then um, stop there and wait for the medications to kick in, give it another hour, so, and then you can kind of come up with a rational dose. Um, so here's our case, case number one. Mr. Epstein, 72-year-old hospice patient, diagnosed with prostate cancer two years ago. His wife calls the office and says he's in so much pain, it came on right like in an instant. Pain's in the right proximal femur. He says it's agonizing. It is a 10. These are the types of patients that say it's a 15, right? He's taking naproxen 500 twice a day. He has a starter kit at home. So a hospice starter kit has um, morphine, Haldol, Ativan typically in it. Um, and you arrive in 10 minutes. What do you recommend? What do you guys think? Look at your partner. Come up with a great plan. They look like zombies. I'm sorry, what'd you say? It could be. So, what are you going to do, though, before you, you don't know that yet? Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, could be. All right, what are you thinking? Extract. You've got an X-ray machine in your car. Drive it right over. That's right. <laughs> I have one in my car, don't you? It would be great if you did. Right. Yes. When's the last time you peed? When's the last time you peed? That's an oh. excellent question. What are you worried about? Okay. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. In the back. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if we follow that approach and you say um, you're doing your dose finding and you say, okay, you're going to start use that starting dose, so two and a half, five milligrams. He's naive. Remember, he's just on a non-steroidal. Um, then you can go ahead and do that dose stacking approach like we talked about, the oral dose, so 2 to 0.5 to 5, and then give it every 30 minutes until the pain comes down 2 to 4 points, right? So what we talked about. And then maybe he's comfortable enough that you can put him in an ambulance and take him to the hospital and do an x-ray to see that he does have a pathological fracture. Yeah, and it might give you some time to just get a better history on him while you're doing mm -hmm. that. Um, so when we're doing uh, round-the-clock therapy, and you can do some dose finding, and this is that PRN dosing that all of a sudden you're starting to think, all right, we're going to start needing this around the clock. Um, and then you get, you can, you know, obviously do it around the clock and you can use that same dose every one to two hours for breakthrough pain. Here's the time when, you know, a lot of people kind of say they're doing this and a lot of people in the hospital will say, well, we'll just do short acting and see how it goes. But my next question is how long are you going to wait until you see how it goes? Because the, sometimes the patients end up on that for months and months and months, um, which is probably not a great compliance or adherence regimen. Um, and then the other thing is, how are you going to know how it goes when you're sending them home and you're going to see them again in like a month? So the pain diary is a really key point here. There's a couple apps out actually that are, um, can be used as pain diaries. So it might be worth looking into depending on your practice, whether they're helpful or not. But it actually can create a little chart for you. So if your patients are tech savvy, that might be a good option. Um, but a good old fashioned pain diary. I was looking online because I've looked a couple times. I tend to make my own and just make it like a Word document because I feel like some of the ones that are out there are very complicated. Once you've assessed the pain and you already know what this pain is, you want to know if it changes or if a new pain presents. But I really want the patient tracking the pain that we talked about and letting, and if something else changes, then you want them to call you um, and you want to be notified of that. But when they're using a pain diary, I really want to know the basics and keep it simple so they tell you. So I think. Just like a diabetic tracks their insulin levels during the day, or I mean their blood glucose levels during the day, and amount of insulin they give in response, that's exactly what you want a pain patient to do with their pain rating and their opioid dosing. What about starting with long-acting opioids? Who's comfortable doing that? Anyone feel like, who sees that done? Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. So you see opioid-naive patients started on long-acting opioids, and it should give us a little bit of pause, right? Um, it was, there was an interesting study in JAGS that was actually out, just out this August, um, and it looked at claims data from re residents in nursing homes, and over half were prescribed a long opioid within 30 days of admission to the nursing home, which is a lot, mm -hmm. 12,000 patients out of 22,000. Um, so 9.4% of them did not have a prescription for any short-acting opioid in the last 60 days, but they were given a long-acting. So that should kind of raise some eyebrows. And out of those, the most common one, guess which long-acting was the most common? The one we were worried about the most, fentanyl patch. Oh, my God. So out of those, half of the new starts were fentanyl patches. What's wrong with that? It's contraindicated. You have to be on 60 milligrams or morphine equivalent a day for at least a week before you can use transdermal fentanyl. But you look so good in orange. Oh, you do look good in orange. <laughs> So I think that was a really alarm. I think that study would be a really good education piece because that. Um, yeah. Do you have a question? Comment? No, and that's the irony. You're exactly right. 12 mics of fentanyl is equal to 25 milligrams of morphine. So this makes absolutely no sense. This is retarded. But you're exactly right. You can't even start the 12 mic patch unless they're on 60 milligrams of morphine at least for a week. But if they were on 60 milligrams of morphine for at least a week, that would be a 25 mic patch. I got nothing. I'm, I don't know. It's just Makes no sense. got stupid written all over it. I got, I got nothing. All right, let's look at this case. A 49-year-old man diagnosed with lung cancer. He developed pain that increased in his use of Percocet, 5-325, gradually increased to six tablets a day. He rated his pain as a 4 to a 5, but he would like it lower. He would like to switch to also a longer-acting drug. So what dose of OxyContin would you recommend in this case? Yeah, what are you going to do? 10 TID, so that's going to be 30 milligrams. Somebody else? Yeah, what are you going to do? 15 Q12, you said? So it's still going to be 30. Anybody else? So 
generally, if, if again, this is about the math. If the patient has an opioid-responsive pain and you just feel that they need more opioid, I do look at the severity. And if their pain is more moderate to severe, um, you can, like, generally I say like 6 or higher, 7 or higher, I would increase by 50 to 100%. And it is about the percentage, not the milligram numbers. If it's mild to moderate, maybe like a four to a six or so, I would increase by 25 to 50%. And I do generally go to the lower numbers, 25% or the 50%. Um, the short acting, you can increase every two hours. So the MSIR, the Roxanol, OxyIR, you can increase those every two hours. The long acting, the MS-Cotton, the, the um, OxyContin, that has to take, you can only increase every 24 hours. So for this guy, he's on 30 milligrams a day of oxycodone. It's leaving him with a pain that's a 4 or a 5. So if you go with Oxy10Q8 or 15Q12, you're still only giving him 30 a day. I agree, like Levi said, you could do that and give him breakthrough and then see where you are in a couple more days and then adjust it. I probably would just go right to Oxy20Q12. What do you think? Yes, sir. There is no advantage that I'm aware of unless the patient had very significant renal dysfunction where oxy would be a little bit better than morphine. Because oxycodone and Well, I'm not sure we can put all the blame on the drug. I know. Uh, you know. That was getting all these ER stuff going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The oxycodone and the morphine and the And again, this is about the math. I agree with you, but this is more about the math than the therapeutics at this point. So just hang with me, okay? Everybody good? There is, no, there's not a benefit. You could use morphine just as easy. Yeah. Less renal dysfunction. So, so HB is a 54-year-old secretary, severe osteoarthritis, Oxycontin 20Q12 with Percocet. So the Percocet 7.5, not 5, in combination. She tells you um, using three Percocet a day keeps her comfortable. What do you do? Is it time to make a change? Who says, yes, we're going to make a change? Yeah, we can tweak it. Who says no? Okay. And says, okay. Okay. We could, look, we could think about coanalgesics here, absolutely. So if um, we were going to, let's entertain the thought. So let's look at what she's taking. 40 milligrams total daily. We add in the Percocet. The total daily, do, total daily oxycodone dose is 62.5. Um, so if you just rolled in her breakthrough dosing, then you'd end up at OxyContin 30 Q12, and then you can keep her Percocet the same and give it to her 1 um, Q4 as needed for pain. Um, if her pain, so she said that her pain was pretty well controlled. What if her pain had been an 8 and it was not controlled? Then what would you do? Okay, so we have a vote for 40 Q12. Anyone agree, disagree? Yeah, I think that's reasonable that you go to 40 Q12. Like, just bump it up a notch and make, get her a little bit more under control, you're going up a third. So that's reasonable. But, for example, to this gentleman's point, if you said, you know, OxyContin is pretty expensive, maybe we should go with generic long-acting morphine. 60 milligrams of Oxy would be 90 of morphine, but you're switching molecules, and suppose her pain was controlled, I would still go, I would reduce it by a third and go to 60 milligrams of morphine, and I would do generic MS-Cotton 30Q12. Mm -hmm. Okay. What, when is switching? No, you'll know within 24, 48 hours. Pardon? Oh, no, you'll be in steady state within 24 hours. So I would say if you give it a couple, three days, you should have a very good feel for it. So what about those patients that have good pain control and they're getting dose-related side effects? So when you think about decreasing opioid doses and you say, okay, taking the around-the-clock opioid dose, um, reducing it by... Um, 30%, and then you can keep the rescue dose there because that'll help you kind of catch up in case that was too much of a, a decrease to 30%. Um, if they have pain and they're having an adverse effect, so you're worried about going down on their dose, then you think, is there anything else we can add? Is there anything else we can pull into this picture? Um, and then you still think about if you can add a analgesic, great, and you still try to reduce the dose because you're really, you know, you really got to manage those side effects first, and hopefully you can get some opioids sparing from that analgesic. Um, what about the patients that undergo a pain-relieving procedure, so you're expecting the pain to go down significantly after that, then you can say, okay, we're going to cut the opioid by 50% immediately and then slow it down every third day um, until it's discontinued, and you can keep the rescue dose in place and then monitor. Um, 
But I think one thing to note here is that if you're in a facility um, and you're decreasing the dose and you're worried about like that last case where you dose reduced pretty quickly, you still have to worry about, even though the pain's not there, you still have to worry about the patient going through withdrawal, right? So they're still, body's still um, toler tolerant to opioids, dependent on them. So using that breakthrough to do that is good, but we have to change the indication in the hospital because remember the PRN dose still, indication still pain. So I've gotten a lot of um, confusion with the nurses saying, well, I can't give it just because there's signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal. And I'm like, well, give the breakthrough. You have to change the indication to signs and symptoms of withdrawal um, or pain for breakthrough. And that rescue dose then can serve two purposes. So a slow taper, that's another uh, thing. If you have the time, great. It would be great to do 10% on a weekly basis. We're not always in that position. Um, or you can do a, rap a more rapid taper, 25 to 50% every, every two weeks. So this is one of those situations where you said, did we taper too fast? This is what you're looking for here. The sows and the cows is different, uh, two different ways you can kind of measure it more objectively. So the sows is a subjective score that patients use and say um, what kind of symptoms are they having, and you can take a look at that checklist. The cow scale is more of a clinician checklist, and it looks at actually measuring elements of tremor, pupil size, sweating, yawning, and things like that done by the clinician. So when we think of breakthrough pain, there's three different types of breakthrough pain that we're looking at, spontaneous, incident, and end-of-dose failure. And I think this kind of describes the characteristics well, too, that spontaneous is um, pain that just comes out of the blue. It can occur without warning. Um, and this pain can give that patient that anticipatory anxiety of, like, I'm just not sure. I'm always on guard because I'm never sure when it's going to come. Um, it can be pretty debilitating. Incident pain, it can be volitional or non-volitional. So volitional is when... Um, the patient has to, um, it's under the patient's control. So I think it versus non-volitional when it's not. And you look at the non-volitional, so volitional is like they're moving or they're, it's actually they can anticipate when it's coming. Non-volitional are things like, I know it's gonna come when I sneeze, but I'm not sure when I'm gonna sneeze. Um, or coughing, bladder spasms, things like that. End of dose breakthrough pain is when the dose tends to wear off at the end of the dosing interval. Um, and it could be due to a subtherapeutic dose. So you can see the management strategy here a little different. So for spontaneous, can a coanalgesic come on board um, using that PRN dose there? Um, incident pain, similar on an as-needed basis. Um, can you do prophylaxis in the volitional? Because you know it's coming when they do certain things. It's under their control, so can you get ahead of that? So for oral dosing, that's an hour in advance, 30 minutes to an hour in advance. So in the hospital, we have to plan ahead. Sometimes in the hospital setting, we'll actually have an IV dose just for those volitional pain incidents so that it can kick in quickly if they're doing personal care or dressing. And then end of dose failure, the strategy for that would be to increase the dose. Um, we had a debate last night actually of whether you decrease the frequency or increase the dose, but these 12-hour medications are really 12 hours. So um, our thought is that you would increase the dose, not the frequency. Something to try first. Yeah. Um, so here's some things to think about um, talking about with your patients and assessing it, um, kind of figuring out what kind of breakthrough pain they have that's there for your reference. Um, and then thinking about the pharmacokinetics when you're thinking about what type of breakthrough dose to use, think about whether it's hydrophilic or lipophilic. That impacts how quickly they kick in. So you can see morphine kicks in the slowest because it's uh, more hydrophilic. And you can see down at the bottom, fentanyl would kick in the quickest because um, it's more lipophilic. Now, methadone is an interesting one there because we don't typically use methadone for breakthrough pain, but could we? Well, it's lipophilic, so it would quick it, kick in quickly. Look at the onset there. It's 10 to 15 minutes. That's amazing. Although we all are aware of the troublemaking part was it lasts a long time, and that's where we get into trouble with methadone. So if it didn't last so long, it might be a great drug, but um, we'll use it for something else, but not breakthrough. So here's the dose is um, 10 to 15% of your total daily dose is where you'd want to aim for that. Um, I always like doing 10, per if I'm stuck and I have two good doses that fit uh, the tablet sizes, I use 10% as a rule of thumb for a pain, breakthrough pain less than five out of 10 and 15% as the Q4 for the breakthrough dose of five or greater. So here's an example here of how to go through the math. Here's Ms. Hendrick, she's a 54-year-old woman. Let's see what we do with her the end stage esophageal cancer. So she's on a fentanyl patch, 75 mics, and oral morphine oral solution is kind of the target for her since she's having trouble swallowing. What would we recommend for dose? Why don't you talk to your partner and assume she has a normal body habitus. How much roxanol would you give her? Go 
Anybody have an answer? Somebody? Some of you look like you're ready to slide in a coma. 15 milligrams of morphine. Let's, let's hit the slide and see. All right. What, see so how we've we got did. 150 milligrams. Um, Next slide. There you go. Um, oral morphine equivalents, 10 to 15 percent. Look where that hits us at 15 or 22.5. That's 22.5 isn't the great thing, but um, if we're using oral solution, 20 milligrams every two hours is a nice, neat dose. Keep a pain diary and then figure out whether it's working or not. Rock and roll. Go. So I'm going to breeze through some fentanyl calculations. How do you convert from oral long-acting to transdermal fentanyl? So I generally use the more aggressive Breitbart method as opposed to the package labeling uh, that started, of course, with duragesic and the uh, generics have also used as well. If the patient's not on oral morphine, do the conversion to oral morphine equivalent. And for every two milligrams of oral morphine per day they're taking, that's equivalent to one microgram per hour of fentanyl, either transdermal or parenteral. So what I do is have the patient take their one last dose of their eight hour or 12 hour tablet at the same time you put on the patch. And then of course, always use the, trans the uh, breakthrough medication as, as appropriate. If instead of long acting oral opioid, they're using a short acting opioid, that's the same thing, except I would have them take maybe two or three doses scheduled of their short acting to get them through that 12 hours. So if you're taking an eight or 12 hour period of opioid, whether it's the long acting or the short acting multiple doses, you get to pseudo steady state with the transdermal fentanyl in about 17 hours. How do you titrate it up? So you can look at how much breakthrough they're using on day two or three. If they're using more than, say, three or four doses of rescue, I would calculate the total daily of rescue and then increase the patch by that equivalent amount. Now, here's the rule of thumb. You can increase by 25 to 50 mics per hour, but you never exceed 100% increase, and no dose increase should ever be greater than 50. So in other words, you can go from a 12 to a 25. You can go from a 25 to a 50, and from a 50, you can go to 75 or 100 at the very most. Once you're 100, the most you can do is go to 150. So good rules to live by here. Um, converting from transdermal fentanyl to an oral opiate. I'm actually not a big fan of transdermal fentanyl at all. It's just too many variables that affect it. Based on the patch strength, I do the math backwards. So the mics per hour times two is the oral morphine dose per day. Now, I think this is an important point. My hospice nurses know this very, very clearly. You don't take off the patch until the new drug is in the home. How many times have we heard, oh, the pharmacy will be here at noon, and let's just take off that nasty old patch, and then the morphine will be here at noon, and you can just start, you know, later today, and then the pharmacist says, you know, we thought we had it in stock, and, you know, wow, this is terrible, but I can get it in in three <laughs> days, so, uh-oh, we just folded it in half and flushed the last transdermal fentanyl patch we have. So for the first 12 hours after taking off the patch, we're waiting for it to dissipate from the skin, so just use the rescue. At 12 hours, you start with half of your scheduled dose, which may be just using scheduled doses of short acting, and then at 24 hours, you go to your full dose. And then the same converting from transdermal to IV fentanyl, same sort of deal. So transdermal fentanyl is the same dose as IV fentanyl. What we have to worry about is the timing. So since this is probably you've moved the patient inpatient, we can be twice as aggressive. So you establish IV access. You may, if you're doing a continuous uh, infusion, you can run it like at a keep vein open kind of rate. Do have your bolus in place. Six hours after taking off the patch, start at half of the intended dose, and at 12 hours, kick it up to 100%. And then going backwards, the same thing, only you do it in reverse. Six hours after putting on the patch, reduce the infusion by half. 12 hours later, stop the infusion and just roll with the bolus. Whoops. Uh, case five. Um, Ms. Johnson, Mr. Johnson is a 62-year-old cancer pain patient, unable to swallow tablets or oral solution. He refuses rectal administration of meds. He's not interested in parenteral. He's currently getting sustained release morphine, 30Q8, with morphine solution, 10Q3, taking four a day. So he's getting 30Q8, that's 90, and then 40 from breakthrough. His pain is well controlled. What do you need to consider before converting him to transdermal fentanyl? So the, the doc says, let's put him on fentanyl. What do you think about and what do you want to know? He's a cancer patient. What if he weighs 72 pounds? Is this going to be a good idea? No. What else do you want to know? Does he have a fever? How st I said his pain is well controlled, but if it was not, I would want to know how stable the pain is. So if the pain is like, wow, all over the place, kind of ratcheting up really quickly, you can't chase a changing pain picture with a delivery system that can take days to get to steady state. How do you make this conversion? 
Well, I think we did the math here. He's on 130 a day of oral morphine. You take divide that in half, and that's 65 mics an hour. And I would never do a 50 plus a 12. So I would always round down because this is more aggressive than the package labeling. So I would go ahead and put him on transdermal fentanyl. How about the timing? What did we just say? Does he take, what about the last tablet of the MS Cotton relative to the patch? Same time. Put on the patch and take one last long-acting morphine. Uh, this is useful information. Tapering down. So you can reduce, rapid titration is reduced by 50% every six days. A slow titration is reduced by 25 mics every 15 days. Okay. We are going to end talking about PCAs, and maybe we'll leave the cases. Um, we'll see how we do. So um, in PCAs, when you talk about PCAs and opioid-tolerant patients, you want to say, okay, what's the current opioid regimen similar to what we've been doing? And then we're going to convert it to the parental opioid that they're getting, right? So let's look at this 30, Q12 of MS content, MSIR10, Q4, taking four doses a day. That gets us to 100 milligrams of oral morphine. That gets us to 33 milligrams of parental opioid when you take one-third of that total daily dose, right? So if we're looking at a continuous infusion, then that lets us know what we're going to be. We're going to be a little bit over like 1.5 milligrams an hour of morphine. So if your current um, opioid regimen is ineffective, then you're going to say, okay, taking that dose that we got in step one, which was 33 milligrams a day, then we can increase it by that 25 to 100%, depending on where that pain is, moderate to severe. A good rule of thumb is split the difference is 50%, because both of them include 50%. And then if the continuous infusion says, okay, this is actually a dose increase, then go ahead and give that clinician um, bolus right at the beginning, and that gets you to pseudo-steady state a little bit faster. So you can do that twice the hourly um, infusion. So here's the bolus calculation. Once you get that continuous infusion set and you're giving that hourly infusion, the bolus can be anywhere from 50 to 150% of that with their lockout. So when the lockout is kind of like they can't, it has, that time has to pass before they can get another dose. Now, we go back and forth all this, about this all the time, and we teach pharmacy students it makes them insane that we have two different approaches for this. Um, it's because our patient populations are fairly different. So a lot of times patients are admitted to the hospital and something horrible happens and they're all stressed out, and we're thinking that some of it might have gotten fixed, depending on what happens. If there's an acute element to their pain, I usually say, okay, the boluses are 50% of their continuous infusion. That's always where we start. Um, now, I used to make the lockout interval shorter, and usually I'm looking at an 8 to 10 minute, minute lockout, and you do something a little bit different because mm -hmm. you're in a different setting. So what if we had a patient who did weigh 70 pounds, who was on transdermal fentanyl, 150 mics an hour, and they're on MSCON, and they're taking dilaudid for breakthrough? What a red-hot mess. So I don't really know exactly what the true conversion is because I don't know how much they were getting. So I do my math. I cut back because of the transdermal fentanyl. Who knows what the patient was really getting? And that's going to be my continuous infusion, which is very, very conservative. But I'm going to be insanely generous with the breakthrough because I don't want anybody to suffer because I'm a big chicken. So I would make it 150% or maybe even 200% of the hourly rate. I can change that bolus every hour up or down. But the continuous infusion, I'm going to wait at least 12 to 20 four hours. Yeah, and so in our setting, we can be a little bit more um, aggressive on the continuous, although we're never like aggressive, but giving them more equal analgesic because we know that that's what they've been getting. They've been in our hospital. Um, so I would take that into close consideration when you determine what, how you want to structure your continuous and your bolus. So there's the math, but then how you play that, um, those are the factors you'd want to consider. Um, so then you'd want to think about adjusting. So here's where people get into trouble, and especially our patients in the ICU, I go over and I look the nurse deeply in the eye and I say, do not touch this infusion, because ICU nurses are very comfortable titrating infusions and drips. So just like they're titrating pressures, pressers on, off, and up and down, and I'm like, this is not one we're going to play with, though. So we're going to wait 12, 24 hours is ideal. Um, and you never want to go up more than 100%. And if you really, really, really were trying, thinking you had to get ahead, you could probably go up 8 to 10 hours or 12 hours, but that would be um, you know, knowing that the patient wasn't fully at steady state yet. Um, the PCA bolus dose, as Lynn said, you can adjust every hour. So that you can use to titrate. So if I tell the nurse, if you need to catch up with this patient, do it with boluses, not with the continuous. Um, here's the cases. Should we do this? Sure, let's do this one. Okay, hang with us. 34-year-old woman with end-stage breast cancer on transdermal fentanyl 50 mics, MS cotton 60Q12, hydromorphone 2Q2 taking four times a day, and DEX. And you want to switch it to a morphine infusion. Anybody want to take this on, or are you completely and totally fried? 
This is why we still have jobs, people, these kinds of cases. We eat this stuff for lunch. We the love button. it. Go to the next slide. All right, let's do it together then, because I'm feeling sorry if you're all starting to look like zombies here. <laughs> Apocalypse now. Transdermal fentanyl 50 is about 100 of oral morphine, plus 60 Q12 is 120. Hydromorphone 2 milligrams times 4 is 8, times 4 is 32 of oral morphine. So the patient's on 252 of oral morphine a day, which would calculate to about 84 of parenteral morphine. Next slide. But, so you could divide by 24 and go to three and a half, but you know, you could increase because the patient's in whopping pain, go up to 4.4, but I'm concerned because the transdermal fentanyl and the hydromorphone are different drugs than the morphine, but the patient's in her hospital, I know they're gonna watch them carefully, so I'm gonna settle out at four milligrams an hour. You could have gone three and a half, you could have gone five and a half, but you know, I just went with the four. And those are important place markers to yeah. have in your brain because you know, this is where I may need to get to from that four, so those are the ones that you kind of keep going saying, this is where I might need to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like a clinician loading bolus. Let's just get the patient up to pseudo steady fit as quickly as we can. And in this case, I'm going to give 50% of the, the continuous infusion as the bolus every 15 minutes. Um, so here's case seven. Case seven. So NA is a 60-year-old woman, cancer, admitted to the hospital for pain. The pain was out of control. So she's stable now. This is what got her stable. PCA subcube morphine. She's taking 1.5 milligrams an hour. She's getting two milligram boluses, and she's taking them before PT. So if she's mainly taking before PT, let's look at her equivalent opioid regimen. So here's your hourly rate. You're getting 36 milligrams of sub-Q morphine a day. And then um, times three gets you your oral daily dose. So do you choices. include the amount you took before physical therapy? What do you guys think? No. Why not? Who said no? Who said no? Right, so that's an important point though. You know, I look at if the patient has incident pain that's volitional, you know, so this is incident pain that's predictable either when they do something or somebody does something to them, you should not include them in the calculations because what if they go home and say, yay, no more PT? Right. So, or maybe you're going to have twice as much PT now. So you can still dose that separately. I would not include it. Yeah. Uh, the other point to this too is looking at the two milligram bullets before PT, um, just as far as the volitional pain and breakthrough pain especially in the hospital, sometimes that dose before does a great job in getting them through PT, and sometimes they need a catch-up when they get back. So sometimes, and it's within that window where it's only been an hour and it's not time for anything else. So if you have an oral breakthrough, a lot of times we'll order a catch-up dose afterwards. Um, but for this patient, I agree. The two milligram boluses, I think we can let that go and use the breakthrough dose for that to plan ahead. So here's our choices to cover the 108 oral morphine a day, Avenza, Cadian, MS Content, or Amorph. And what, what would you give for breakthrough? How much would you give? So 10 to 15 percent of 100. Yep. So 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams. I do like the trick of getting two orders: 10 milligrams for moderate pain Q2, 15 or 20 milligrams Q2 PRN severe pain. That way, often you know when patients have an advanced illness, any measure of control you can give them is a good thing. They're the best judge of their pain. Pardon? What product am I using? I like Roxanol for a hospice patient. If it's MSR, I would have to go 15 or 30. And for a hospital setting, we have a huge challenge, I don't know about you, but about concentrated solutions. So we only use concentrated solutions if we have to, because we usually have IV lines in them anyway. So um, we'll use that for transitioning them for discharge the 24 hours before they leave. But we have a, I have a pinky promise and swearing on everything I know um, to the director of pharmacy saying we will not use concentrated opioids unless we absolutely have to before discharge because everyone needs to be pulled up by a pharmacist, hand delivered. If the patient moves, it needs to be moved. So um, be kind to your hospital pharmacist and um, limit your concentrated solution use in the hospital if the patient has a line and we save it for NPOs. Um, so in the hospital, we would probably use IV if she has PCA and she's coming off PCA. A lot of times when you get a patient off of a PCA and you put them in an oral, we keep the PCA going just for bolus only because it also gives them that sense of control where we're not ripping the whole thing away that's been working for them. Um, but for this person, if she's going to PT and she's up and she's mobile, like let's get the lines out and give her the IV um, as, PR, as PRN. So if in the hospital setting, that's kind of how we think through that similarly. So let's say not a hospice patient, but just a regular chronic pain patient comes in for acute chronic back pain, they're now status quo back fusion. Um, and oftentimes we'll put them on PCA and conclude they're not commensurate with their whole regimen. But if we were to take all those, let's say they were on you know, 200 milligrams of oral working equivalents per day, it's gonna be a pretty hefty um, continuous rate. Yes. Do you make any adjustments in your continuous rate? I, I've been kind of swirling and only been going about 
to convert it off of a PCA? Yeah. Like yeah. Right. I, I, so I'm right there with you in the acute pain guidelines um, from APS say the same thing. that I am actually take half of the bolus dosing because I usually really don't do a lot with my continuous. Like if I lay a continuous on, it's only to cover their home, um, what they came in on, what their tolerance was when they come in on. I don't use any of that to cover their acute pain. Right, so then they're using boluses and they're and they're catching up throughout the next day or two and titrating. Um, when they come off, I take half of the bolus doses and convert that into the long acting, but I don't take the whole amount because for the acute pain, you're hoping that that part has resolved or at least is going down. Um, so I I'm with you on that. I only for acute pain situations, I only use half of the bolus into the oral route. So unless you're concerned that it's a serious illness patient and that's their new level of pain and it's going to stay then taking half is a, probably a smart, a wise option. So otherwise you do, you're like dumping a truck of opioids into them, well, feels like it. And then, and for instance, in our hospital, they've taken continuous rates completely off of PCA options for ortho patients, and they do a long-acting OxyContin at night, um, and they do it during night, and then they use breakthrough doses during the day when the patient can be up and act um, and actively seek it, and allows them to kind of self-titrate during the day, and then do a long-acting 20 milligrams, typically OxyContin at night for a naive patient to get them through. That's right. Yes, and not worry about the continuous. Right. That's wise. Yeah, no, you're right. The first 24 hours, when it's acute pain, you do have to think carefully and say, how much of that am I really going to plan out for this patient and what they're going to look like next week? So, but then you think about that cover, making sure you're getting them to that level, that their bolus doses or their breakthrough doses can still get them to that level, but you might do the um, standing doses um, a fraction of it. Q5 short. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, yeah. Unless it's fentanyl, do you have real shouldn't yeah. go below eight? Well, I rarely use anesthesiologist, so honestly, I just have my fingers how many times in 13 years I've worked there, I've dealt with fentanyl. So good. All right, any last questions in the last minute of Pain Week 16? We will be up there. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll see you next year.